Ian Talbot is Professor of Modern British History at the University of Southampton. He's one of Europe's leading historians of South Asia and the author of many books on the subcontinent, including the acclaimed Pakistan A New History. He's particularly interested in the colonial and post-colonial history of Punjab, and his work has touched on the memory of partition, the legacy of the British Raj, and the human dimension of, pl- of Pakistan's political development. In this episode, he discusses his latest books and explores recent developments in Pakistani politics and diplomacy. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to start by asking you a bit about your work more generally. How did you become interested in South Asian Asian history or what drew you to this particular topic? I mean, that's going back many, many years. Um, I suppose I was originally interested in South Asian history because of um, my tutor at university, London University, Francis Robinson, who was later to be my PhD supervisor. He actually taught some undergraduate courses uh, in uh, sort of South Asian history as part of a a modern history, politics, economics degree I was doing, Mm which is back in the 70s. So from there, I got an interest in uh, looking at the role of Islam Mm -hmm. in political mobilization. Uh, and um, no one had really looked at uh, local level politics uh, in British India in terms of the growth of support for the Muslim League as a party that was advocating a separate state. Uh, so that's really how I, I got into it. Uh, and of course, uh, once you get into uh, studying a region in a country, then you get more and more engrossed with it over the years and you visit it and you um, sort of take it from there, but uh, that, that's how I, I, I originated in it. Uh, I know some people from my generation probably got interested in uh, South Asian history because uh, their parents had been um, working in the British Raj, but that wasn't the case in, in, in my instance. Mm-hmm. So your most recent book um, is about colonial Lahore, and uh, one of your goals in it is, from what I know, is to highlight sort of the city's identity beyond colonialism and before colonialism. So um, it's it's something a lot of other histories have kind of overlooked. And essentially, you're trying to challenge the dominance of the imperial gaze. Um, so how do you how do you do that exactly? Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that book on uh, on Lahore grew out of the fact that I've been visiting the city since the 1970s. Uh, and uh, of course, I, I co-authored it with Tahir Kamran, who I've known for well over 20 years, who's a resident of Lahore. Uh, so what we were bringing to it uh, personally, uh, aside from the sources we looked at, uh, was a, a sort of insider-outsider perspective, uh, in which looked away from the politics of the city and much more at the social history religious history, cultural history, and uh, in both the pre-colonial period and obviously in in the colonial era. So it wasn't really a history about the British uh, in Lahore uh, so much, but obviously the way in which the British presence impacted uh, the life of the the local population uh, and how some of them took the advantages of of the British presence to further their own interests uh, during uh, the relatively brief period, of course, of, of British rule in the city, because some of these residents can trace their uh, lineage in the city six, seven, eight, nine centuries. You know, so in that context, the British period is is, is quite a brief interlude. In a similar vein, 
You have done a lot of work on the partition. Um, you've sort of tried to construct a new history of partition um, by emphasizing the people as opposed to the politics, um, which is also something you do in the book about Lahore. Um, so, sure. for example, um, you've written about the experiences of migration across the India-Pakistan border. Um, I'm curious about how, how exactly did you approach these memories of partition and what was it like to sort of engage with this topic? I mean, this was a topic which I felt um, very privileged to be able to engage in because um, I had access to communities on both sides of the border, which is not, uh, you know, if you're a researcher from India or Pakistan, it would be very difficult to, to actually do that. Uh, at the time I was doing this research, I'd already been working 20, nearly 30 years on uh, the history of the region, so I had lots of contacts in uh, university life and beyond that in both uh, India and Pakistan uh, from the Punjab perspective because Punjab was a region that uh, I'd always been interested in right from the beginning. So I was able to move across the border, literally, you know, walking across the border, something which isn't uh, a privilege uh, for most people from a, a subcontinental background and to visit and I focused it really on the two cities of Lahore and Amritsar, uh, which are only about 30 miles apart, but obviously separated by this, uh, for some of the people, their impenetrable border. Uh, and I set about um, identifying, through my knowledge of the cities and the contacts I had there, uh, communities of refugees. And they tend to, uh, to be in a particular area. Uh, and, and really, it was a snowball uh, uh, growth of interviewing from that. Once you identified uh, uh, a locality which had a large number of refugees, you would go along and see a particular family. Uh, and, of course, they would then uh, pass on your contact details to people uh, who they knew, and, and you would sort of snowball the uh, interviews in that way. Uh, of course... It's an incredibly sensitive issue to discuss, uh, and so I had to have um, both Pakistani and Indian uh, researchers with me uh, as an outsider and someone uh, coming and wanting to talk about, say, women's experience of partition, because I didn't want it just to be a, a one-sided uh, approach. Then I really needed to uh, reach out uh, to local researchers who uh, would be able to to do that uh, that work with me. So I didn't. I mean, I did many many interviews myself, but I also uh, worked alongside uh, local um, researchers in both cities while I was doing the research. Could you talk a bit more then about um, sort of like your experiences as, I guess, an outsider? And how do you think, do you think that's influenced sort of your interpretation of the history at all? I think that uh, there are advantages uh, and disadvantages of being an outsider when you're doing um, sort of cultural history. Uh, some people call it uh, more anthropological than hi historical. Um, because obviously, uh, you're not necessarily given the same degree of trust 
uh, as uh, a local would be. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, if you're in these cities for any length of time and you visit them, which I do repeatedly, uh, then um, you get known and that enables you to break down some of those uh, barriers which you might face as an outsider. There may, of course, be advantages in being an outsider and doing this kind of research as well, in that um, you, you might be able to step back a little bit and, and not be quite so uh, emotionally invested uh, in the issues uh, which you're addressing. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things which is really important and comes across in all the work I've done over the years is that uh, whilst we're talking about historical events now 75, 80 more years ago in some instances, if you're going back to uh, asking people to talk about their family's history on the eve of partition or before, uh, nonetheless, it, it still has a very much a, a current uh, presence in their lives uh, and in some senses a very traumatic uh, and emotional presence in their life. And I suppose as an outsider, you may um, have some advantages as well as disadvantages in, in uh, dealing with those kind of uh, issues relating to how people actually feel and experience and remember and retell over generations now. Uh, this profound uh, dislocation uh, which uh, was suffered uh, in 1947 and the ramifications of which are still uh, felt and visible uh, today in in these areas of south asia and could you could you sort of elaborate on that a bit um what are what do those ramifications kind of look like and um i know there's sort of at first there's sort of maybe othering of these these traumatic experiences but what is that how has that sort of changed in the past 70 years i mean obviously people um as families have their own uh memories of, of these events, uh, which are then refracted through community and national narratives. Uh, and of course, they uh, grow up in, a, in an environment which is retelling these events or silence about these events, certainly until the 1990s. In, in many families, uh, there was a silence about what had happened. Uh, so they're experiencing the events, and even the people who I was interviewing who, who lived through them, you know, are experiencing them in terms of how they have experienced life since uh, this moment of partition. And some people did well, other people never recovered emotionally, psychologically, materially from the losses that, that, that occurred at that time. Other people uh, were able to adjust, and some people actually prospered in the circumstances of, of, of the post-partition resettlement environment. So, in a sense, as a historian, you're very much aware that people are reflecting on where they are now and how they're feeling about things now, as well as uh, narrating memories, some of which are very partial, some of which are rehearsed, and you, you can sometimes pick these up. Uh, when you're talking to people. Uh, so the memory itself is something which is alive. And then the physical environment, uh, you're saying about the ramifications. Um, if you visit 
areas which had former uh, Muslim populations now uh, inhabited by Hindu and Sikh refugees from Pakistan, you will see uh, signs of uh, the former Muslim presence. Sometimes even the name of the place has not changed since partition. And the same if you go to Lahore, to Hindu areas which uh, Muslim refugees moved into. Some of the buildings have been many um, sort of changed in their usage. So you get situations where mosques in Amritsar, for example, have been uh, remodeled as Sikh Gurdwaras, uh, but you can still obviously see the architectural uh, presence of them formerly being mosque, and the same in uh, individual buildings. Uh, and then the names which people give to their shops and their properties, uh, residential properties, often they give the name of the place they come from. Uh, over the border, so they're keeping their memory alive there, and that's visible in in street signs uh, as as you move around. So there's a there's a physical uh, visible presence, and and then there's an underlying uh, more emotional uh, presence of uh, the past, and and people certainly um, are, are quite alive uh, to uh, where they've come from. Uh, because that's partly why it was such a trauma for them, because they were rooted uh, in their ancestral villages, which went back for generations. Uh, and, and they're not going to forget that, and they tell that to their children, because their children want to know where they've come from, and to have some sense of uh, belonging and identity. Uh, so that uh, I think that's one of the interesting things uh, that, that's happened over the years while I've been studying this, is that with the growth of the diaspora, uh, you're getting, uh, certainly in Britain, people from South Asian uh, backgrounds who really want to reconnect uh, with uh, their parents' and grandparents' lives, uh, even if that's over the border uh, from their identity, which they might say they're of, of, of sort of Indian British uh, descent, but their actual family residences may well be uh, in what is now Pakistan. Uh, and uh, the BBC did a series of interesting uh, documentaries uh, around the, um, the 70th anniversary of partition and independence where people, they went back with people or they encouraged people to, um, to record their experiences. Perhaps these are sort of uh, third, sometimes fourth generation British uh, Pakistanis or British Indians, you know, who are going over the border, uh, and and it, they're, they're trying to reconnect uh, with, with uh, where their families originated from. Yeah, um, that actually kind of leads me to sort of another uh, another thing I'm curious about, which is um, in a lot of your work, you're um, trying to explore Pakistan uh, on its own terms. Um, this shows up in, for, for example, Pakistan, A New History, um, you, uh, which is one of your earlier books. You try to avoid the prevailing image of Pakistan as, as a problematic state or a state that was destined for collapse. Um, so I'm curious about how, how, does it, how has this approach worked exactly and um, how, how have you gone about sort of writing history in this way? I, I mean, obviously, uh, if you're looking at social or cultural history, uh, you're trying to understand the society in its own terms. And, and not seeing it perhaps in a way that uh, some political scientist or certainly policy-oriented uh, scholars would do, which, which is a, a, as a, a sort of international problem as far as Pakistan is concerned in terms of its in instability. 
Um, I, I mean, that was one of, I, th I, I think, of the, the tragedies really for the whole field of, uh, of work that post 9-11, there were a lot of people who moved into Pakistan studies uh, and really had uh, very little empathy or understanding of Pakistani culture uh, and were approaching it from a very narrow security dimension. Uh, without a sense of history, without a sense of culture or empathy. Uh, and, and in a way, I, when I wrote that book uh, about the history of Pakistan, I, I was sort of reacting uh, to that background uh, and, and trying to establish a sense of, of which Pakistan needs to be understood on its own terms. Uh, it cannot just be understood in terms of um, sort of theorizing about, a, say, a failed state. Uh, it, it needs to be understood in terms of its own complexities and nuances uh, and, and it's actually a much more um, complicated uh, society than the way in which it's sometimes stereotypically portrayed. Uh, and I mean the irony of it was in, in a way that uh, some of this so-called new literature uh, post 9-11 that was being produced uh, about Pakistan was very much influenced by uh, colonialist ori orientalism, in other words, sort of colonial era stereotypes uh, were being picked up on uh, in uh, some of the, these writings which were now uh, sort of trying to understand Pakistan. And, and um, in a way, what I was doing in my work, and trying to do anyway, uh, was to, to sort of show that things were much more complex uh, than this, and you cannot reduce uh, you know, Pakistan to just uh, a narrow understanding of the country in terms of a particular brand of Islam, for example, and, and, and that, that the reality is much more complicated uh, than that. So that, that was really the context in which that kind of work came about. But I mean, I, it wouldn't have been possible for me to have done it without having been engaged, obviously, for many years in uh, studying Pakistan uh, and, and developing uh, my understanding as an outsider, it's true, but of the country uh, before all of this literature really started uh, being uh, poured out uh, post 9-11 in terms of what kind of society and state Pakistan was, you know, and how the West could deal with it, you know, in, in terms of its um, sort of challenges. But you've also written um, on the subject of these Orientalist stereotypes, um, that a lot of these stereotypes are now perpetuated um, in the cause of conservation. Um, can you talk a bit about that and how that sort of has influenced Pakistan's, I guess, uh, political and cultural place? I, I, well, one of the first things to bear in mind, of course, is that within Pakistan itself, uh, Orientalist stereotypes have been internalized. Uh, by groups within Pakistan society and they may be sort of using these uh, stereotypes in order to further their agendas, one agenda of which is um, say the conservation of um, history uh, so that um, traditional uh, ways of behaving, traditional uh, cultural practices, um, buildings, all of which were seen as it being uh, endangered by uh, over-rash modernization uh, within the country. I mean, much of Lahore's cultural heritage uh, is still at risk 
and much of it has been lost in the last 20 or 30 years because of um, the growth of the city, urbanization, modernity, development. Uh, and the people who uh, are often fighting uh, these processes of modernity and development within the city uh, fall back on Orientalist stereotypes and, and uh, colonial era uh, portrayals of, of history uh, as a kind of mechanism for uh, supporting uh, their activism. So that uh, you, you get these processes uh, underway as well. So, so it's internalizing some of the values of the colonial state, uh, but in order to defend what they see as tradition against excessive modernization. Um, that actually um, it brings me to another subject which I wanted to ask about, which is your next book. Um, so you're currently working on the first history of the British High Commission in Pakistan. Um, so I think that sort of plays into a lot of these international modernizing influences. Um, can you tell us a bit about the book? Yes, I mean, the, the, the book, um, in a way, is uh, stepping aside from some of the work that I've been doing. I wanted to do something different, having done the the cultural history of Lahore, uh, and, and to branch out and to do something a bit uh, more different, but not in the sense of um, necessarily doing um, purely a political study. Uh, so what, I, what I'm doing in this book uh, is, is to look at um, the ways in which British influence on the ground in Pakistan uh, has uh, continued um, in a way out of proportion uh, to the amount of uh, military, political, diplomatic, economic influence uh, that, that Britain can wield. Uh, and how could this happen? You know, and, and, and in a way, I suppose it, it's a kind of um, sort of sense that uh, continuities uh, coming out of the colonial era uh, have actually been deployed by um, British diplomats, uh, some of whom had their uh, grandparents or relatives working in these areas of, of what became Pakistan in the colonial era, uh, and, and falling back on those ties uh, and that influence uh, in order to have a, a kind of uh, relational influence. What I'm arguing in the book is, is whilst the Americans have tried uh, in a much more transactional way to leverage Pakistan in the direction that they would wish, uh, the British uh, are maintaining their interest, uh, as they understand them, commercial, diplomatic, strategic to a limited extent uh, in Pakistan on a relational uh, basis. And that relational basis is, is made possible partly by the history of colonial rule and the ties and contacts from there, but also on the uh, adroit uh, utilization of um, diasporic contacts uh, from uh, the growing and much more self-confident uh, Pakistani community in Britain, um, some of whom of course have very close uh, ties, still family ties, economic ties uh, with the homeland as they would call it, so that um, the, the British diplomats tap into that kind of uh, network as well. So it, it's a sort of relational uh, basis rather than one based on um, being able to 
give the Pakistan state the kind of things that it, it is seeking perhaps from Western countries in large amounts in terms of aid, uh, weaponry, uh, etc. So it's soft power. I mean, we're talking about the exercise of soft power uh, uh, in, in this way. And, and what is very interesting, uh, and I've noticed this because I've been visiting the subcontinent for uh, nearly 40 years now, uh, is that uh, these relational ties and this ability to wield soft power uh, is um, very much a Pakistan thing. It's not an Indian thing. Um, first, when I used to go to Pakistan, I thought it was just people saying what they thought I would like to hear. Uh, then I checked it out with other people, uh, Pakistanis and uh, other British visitors, uh, and there is a genuine sentiment towards um, Britain in Pakistan, and there isn't the same degree of bitterness about uh, the British presence uh, in the subcontinent, which you would perhaps pick up sometimes in India. Uh, and, and that is a significant difference between, uh, I think, the two countries. And the relational basis of, for the British influence in Pakistan wouldn't be uh, as possible, I think, uh, in India uh, as it is in Pakistan. Many Pakistanis regard Britain as their second home, uh, from politicians right the way down to uh, obviously people who have family who are settled here, students uh, who have had contacts have gone back to Pakistan. Uh, they still regard uh, Britain as a second home. And this is something which is quite marked. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to bring out in the book. It's not really been sort of written about. Sometimes newspapers sort of play with these ideas. But what I'm trying to do in this book is to sort of demonstrate uh, over a period of time, uh, and uh, that th this is actually you know, not something which is constructed, um, but 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 does have uh, a reality to it. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit more then about the difference between the British relationship with Pakistan and the British relationship with India? Um, how do you think that came to be, or like where does that originate historically? I think um, I mean obviously. Whilst um, within Pakistan, in, in the immediate aftermath of partition, there was a certain bitterness, particularly about people like Lord Mountbatten, the last viceroy, uh, who was seen to be pro-India and to have um, sort of influenced the borders uh, to Pakistan's detriment. Uh, whilst there was this sort of initial uh, sentiment, uh, there was also very much um, a sense, I think, that um, Britain had made it possible uh, for Pakistan to come into existence uh, and that Pakistan had come into existence perhaps against the odds in the, in the sense of the um, relative strength of the Muslim League and its demands and the Congress and its influence. So I, I think that, that there were these two currents uh, which were, which were there at, at the time of independence. Uh, Pakistan enables, uh, Britain enables Pakistan to come to birth. It doesn't mean to say it's necessarily that Pakistan everyone might ideally have wanted, uh, but nonetheless uh, there is that uh, role. So I think that, that, that there's that uh, element. I suppose if you go beyond that, um, 
you might, you know, say that um, the British had um, not divided and ruled um, totally, but nonetheless had supported Muslim interests and recognized Muslim interests uh, in India. Uh, and, and to that effect, of course, it created the circumstances in which Muslim leadership could emerge uh, and could, uh, in a way, um, sort of create uh, possible space for its uh, separatist demands. So the British are seen in that light, I think, as, as uh, sort of enabling uh, Muslims who were unhappy about the prospect of future Hindu domination uh, once the British had left, to have space uh, to organize themselves and, and that they had been, uh, to a degree, uh, encouraged by the, the, the colonial rulers uh, in this enterprise. Although it wasn't the case, as, as uh, some of the stereotypes in India say, that, that this was a put-up job uh, by the British and, and that, uh, that the Muslim politicians, intellectuals, you know, had just taken their their um, cue from uh, the British ruling elite. That wasn't the case. Uh, but certainly the British had not put any barriers in the way of Muslim organisation. Uh, and, and, and that, I think, is quite important. Yeah. Um, going back to what you mentioned earlier about um, British soft power in Pakistan, could you talk a bit more about that? What does what that kind of look like and how has that sort of developed um, over the years? I, I mean, obviously... Um, one of the arms of British soft power, not just in Pakistan, but worldwide, is the activities of the British Council uh, and the resource of the English language uh, and um, of um, certainly uh, the cultural affiliations which uh, many Pakistanis have uh, f for um, the English language. Uh, and I think that that is quite an important element in soft power, you know, and this goes right the way back to the early 1950s when you get Shakespearean touring companies going around the subcontinent uh, and, uh, you know, are, are, are sort of obviously uh, only a, sort of appealing to a quite a limited uh, section of the population, but a, an influential section of the population. So soft power in terms of English language, English um, values, I think, is um, sort of uh, important and is deployed. Uh, I think you also find that most high commissioners uh, in uh, British high commissioners in Pakistan uh, always play the cricket card, uh, and this goes down very well, uh, particularly with someone like Imran Khan being uh, prime minister at the moment. Uh, but way before that, uh, they always showed that uh, a shared love of cricket uh, was something which was bringing the two countries together. So sporting associations, English language, uh, you know, I, I think uh, very important. Uh, I mean, in more recent years, of course, also what um, the High Commission has been doing is showcasing the, um, through social media, uh, the success stories of Pakistanis in Britain uh, and, and showing how Pakistanis uh, have in various walks of life right the way through from um, boxing through to sort of literature through to um, politics uh, Sayyad Abbasi for example um, so that they're, they're, they showcase how Pakistanis uh, have 
done in Britain. Uh, and I think that's another aspect of the soft power uh, at, at play as well. Uh, and and I, I suppose also, uh, as far as Britain and Pakistan is concerned, um, Britain tries to, but it's difficult uh, because of um, the, the the Kashmir issue. Uh, but Britain tries to uh, show itself as um, a power which is uh, sort of even-handed, as opposed to perhaps other countries which may favour either India or Pakistan. I mean, the Pakistani diplomats uh, obviously are there in Pakistan. They're, they're showcasing Britain in Pakistan, but they're operating within an environment which Pakistanis would see uh, Britain uh, as uh, also having an interest, of course, in India, uh, uh, and uh, as Britain is a, a kind of um, sort of uh, umpire in some respects, and you know, but it hasn't always worked out that way, of course. And people are very quick, either in India or Pakistan, when Britain seems to be tilting to one side or the other. Uh, but but that's uh, a factor, and then obviously the Commonwealth is the other uh, aspects of soft power and, and all kinds of um, sort of influences uh, coming out of the Commonwealth uh, relationship. So those are, I think, the range of things, and they vary from time to time, which is more important. But I mean, the underlying uh, issues, are, you know, are, are, are I think the, um, the historical ties which Pakistanis value, uh, the, the ties with the diaspora in, in Britain, uh, the English language uh, and, and all that that uh, can offer to people in Pakistan in terms of their uh, window on a wider world. Uh, and, and also I think uh, th this um, reputation, it, it may just be a myth of course of, of British fairness and even handedness uh, in the world. What is very interesting is that uh, even when Britain and the United States were acting you know, very similarly in Afghanistan post 9/11, uh, relations were always a roller coaster between uh, Washington uh, and Islamabad. But they always uh, followed a much more even keel as far as Pakistan and Britain was was concerned. Uh, and and the Britain never got the same degree of hostility uh, which the United States has frequently experienced uh, in uh, Pakistan. Um, what about the Pakistani sort of side of the story, both in terms of the soft power and the special relationship generally? Sort of, what does that look like for Britain and Pakistan? I mean, the special relationship, as I say, is this historical relationship and and this sentiment uh, that Pakistanis have towards Britain, uh, which is sustained. If you think about uh, hundreds of thousands of Pakistanis who are going back and forth every year between Britain. Uh, and uh, most families in Britain have close relatives in Pakistan. Uh, so they're going back and forth. They're also telling people about what life in Britain is like uh, as well. So that it's not just the, you know, the High Commission trying to spin a, a tale about it. Uh, it comes out of the experience as well of, 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 of Pakistanis uh, in the UK. So that relationship um, between the diaspora and, and their homeland is, is much more significant than any other country, I think, uh, because of the size of the Pakistani community, 
the, the, the length of time the Pakistani community has been in the UK, uh, the closeness of ties, um, often around marriage, uh, with, with uh, marriage preferences uh, of uh, people in Britain for Pakistani brides, for example, so that uh, this is something which is continuing and ongoing. And, and that is uh, an aspect, I think, uh, which is um, not really being fully uh, taken into significance uh, in, in terms of the, the relationship between the two states uh, at, at a political level. Uh, I, you know, this, this interaction is, is really quite um, significant. But given the um, establishment of the diaspora um, and other things as well, where do you see sort of the future of this diplomatic relationship? I think, I, I mean, obviously, um, Britain uh, is going to still have considerable influence uh, in Pakistan, uh, even with the rise of China uh, as, as a major uh, player uh, in, in Pakistan. Uh, it's going to be an influence which will continue out of proportion to, to the material uh, basis of that relationship, I, I, I think, going forward. Uh, I think the role of the diaspora will become even more important uh, in future uh, years uh, than it is now in terms of sustaining this relationship. I think that um, as far as Britain is concerned, um, Pakistan is, is probably a success story diplomatically. And it may be that a post-Brexit Britain um, tries to play up this story uh, because it does fit with a global Britain um, sort of position, perhaps much better than other parts of the world where, uh, to be frank, uh, former uh, colonies do not want to be in a close relationship with Britain uh, and, and to bail out Britain uh, uh, in the future. Uh, and certainly, uh, whilst perhaps economically the relationship with India might be uh, greater, much greater than uh, with Pakistan in emotional terms and in uh, the psychology of, of, uh, of all of this is never going to, I think, be the same. So I, I don't see any uh, diminished uh, British interest in Pakistan going forward. Uh, and uh, I think that that's inevitable, you know, given this large diasporic uh, connection. Uh, whether, of course, um, the, uh, the economic basis will be as significant as some people on both sides both in Pakistan and in Britain, uh, might want it to be is another matter because I don't think either country may have the um, the wherewithal uh, for the kind of levels of import export business uh, that that some people might uh, seek. Another um, sort of on on the subject of. Um, the future of Pakistan, you've written that um, the civil-military relationship within Pakistan will be a key determinant of its future. Um, could you elaborate a bit on that, sort of what do you mean by that, and how do you see it playing out? Yes, I mean, obviously, um, we've had now uh, a period of time where there have been elections and governments have uh, served their full term. Um, whether one can say that democracy is fully consolidated in Pakistan is another matter altogether. Uh, but, but obviously there seems to be uh, a, a change in that sense. Uh, having said that, the military 
uh, are immensely influential behind the scenes uh, in, in Pakistan uh, in terms of uh, foreign policy, security policy uh, particularly. Uh, and uh, for there to be a normalization of a relationship between the the military and the elected politicians in which the elected politicians tell the army what to do uh, is, is, a, is another matter perhaps uh, and, and I think that uh, Pakistan is, is sort of probably uh, as political scientists would call it a hybrid regime in other words it, it, it has some elements of democracy it has some elements of um, sort of civil society being very uh, buoyant but on the other hand the military are very much uh, key players uh, in the country and, and they're playing um, quite a key role now in the COVID-19 uh, responses of the Pakistan state. Uh, I mean the, no surprise there but uh, it, it seems inconceivable uh, that the military won't be very important uh, in the future of Pakistan as we go forward. Um, and and that uh, I, th I think uh, you know is is uh, factored in by Britain and by other countries as well. You know, in terms of uh, how they view the country and and which people they need to uh, on a diplomatic level uh, communicate with. They may need to communicate with the military as well as with uh, civilian politicians in particular areas. Yeah. Um, then how do you think this situation? Um, and also, I guess, combined with um, the the history um, post-partition and the development of the government, how do you think this will play into Pakistan's um, place on the on the international scale? I mean, as far as I mean, Pakistan is uh, by if you're taking out India from the equation, Pakistan will be quite a, a big country. Uh, economically, certainly uh, in terms of its population. It's only uh, because it's set alongside India, which is so huge in population terms and potentially economically, that, that Pakistan seems a relatively small player. I mean, the other point about Pakistan, of course, which its uh, sort of uh, political elites have been making great play with, is its uh, strategic location. This was once very important to the United States. So obviously now it's talking about a strategic location uh, in, in terms of uh, China's um, Belt and Road sort of schemes uh, and in a way of course uh, people in Pakistan uh, are, are saying that its future uh, will be uh, perhaps potentially transformed by the relationship with China. And China, of course, as you know, has put huge investments in infrastructure already and um, is a, uh, a significant future player uh, for, for Pakistan. So Pakistan is, is using its geopolitical situation, which in the past could have perhaps been a handicap uh, as, as a potential game changer to use the uh, the new speak uh, uh, for the future. So I think the Chinese-Pakistan link-up, you know, is something really which going forward is going to be very significant. Whether it delivers everything that uh, some of the more enthusiastic uh, Pakistani uh, writers and politicians think is another matter. Uh, but but certainly it is going to be a significant feature 
in in that. And, and of course, um, in a way, uh, Pakistan uh, is at the intersection of a number of worlds. Uh, it could also, and it has also, of course, um, sort of linked up very much with. Um, the Arab world and the Middle East, uh, as well as with China. So Pakistan, I don't think, sees itself anymore uh, as purely bounded as a South Asian entity. Uh, this is where um, it, it has moved on, perhaps, from partition uh, in in some respects, and uh, in, in that it, it's looking more to the Islamic uh, and world and. and to China than perhaps uh, it is to its position in South Asia. But of course what anchors it in South Asia is the, the sense within Pakistan, and this is shared by civilians, the military, across all elements of society, uh, the, the sense of threat of India. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, of course, embodied in the Kashmir issue, but it's not uh, confined to it. So, so Pakistan, uh, in that sense, I think, it is still Indocentric in certain aspects of its security and foreign policy, and yet it's looking uh, for equalizers. It wants to punch its weight level with India. It's looking for equalizers. One equalizer is possession of nuclear weapons, obviously. Another equalizer, certainly as it's seen today uh, by some uh, policy uh, makers would be the link with China uh, that would e equalize it vis-a-vis -vis India. It's certainly not uh, prepared to um, accept readily a sense that uh, India has the right to be the hegemon in the region uh, and that uh, it's not going to challenge that. Because uh, that makes it very difficult uh, once you adopt that attitude uh, to see how the military uh, presence and influence in the country can be rolled back because ultimately the military are the the, the guarantors uh, of uh, the, the safety of the state vis-a-vis -vis India. Yeah. Um, it's actually really interesting that you sort of mentioned how Pakistan is is looking towards the, the Islamic world and towards China even as it maintains this relationship with India. Um, do you think that sort of affected um, the writing of Pakistani history at all? Um, how do you see that as a historian? Uh, I, I mean, obviously, uh, some people now are sort of talking about um, long-term trading links with uh, the Silk Road and restoring that. Uh, you know, some people are uh, looking at, at the Chinese um, linkage then in a longer-term historical perspective. Realistically, of course, really this relationship with China only goes back to the 1960s. Uh, and particularly the, the, the Sino-Indian War, uh, border war, uh, which uh, I think was a sea change in terms of uh, Pakistan's relationship with China and how it views China as a potential ally uh, as against India. Uh, the Islamic world, of course, is a different matter altogether. I mean, there are people who would see the links with the Islamic world as, as being inherent in uh, the history of Pakistan, really from when the first sort of um, Arabs set foot in the subcontinent and would certainly see fulfillment of Pakistan's uh, Islamic identity as, as something which uh, is, is historically rooted uh, and isn't just uh, a sort of strategic or economic necessity. Uh, 
so that um, in those instances, then different groups in Pakistan play different histories, emphasize different elements of the past in order to justify perhaps contemporary uh, needs and requirements. You know, and, and certainly those are for um, Pakistan to be active in uh, the Islamic world. Though that throws up problems, of course, for it. Uh, given its own Shia minority community, its uh, borders with Iran, because it's too tied in with Saudi Arabia and the Sunni nations, that, that can lead to uh, problems within its own borders and its own relationship. Uh, so that uh, it's not unproblematic, uh, Pakistan's relationship with the Islamic world, uh, for, for those reasons. China is a different matter. There are very few people in Pakistan who would... Um, sort of see China as a threat to Pakistan or a disruptor to internal harmony. Uh, obviously, there's no um, sense really yet, you know, of, of uh, China perhaps exploiting Pakistan, which could be a, a, a potential aspect coming out of this uh, sort of investment in the country in the longer run. Uh, but, but certainly at the moment, you know, civilians and military, though the military are particularly keen on the China link for obvious reasons, uh, but there are very few voices other than, I suppose, um, some Baluch nationalists who uh, would see the Chinese uh, investment in Baluchistan as perpetuating the exploitation of Baluchistan. Uh, on behalf of the Pakistan state and against the interests of the Baluch people. So I'm not saying that uh, the China link is, is sort of totally uh, uncontroversial. It isn't. You know, who benefits from the China link uh, sets up all kinds of divisions within Pakistan between different communities. But uh, on the whole, uh, the China link is, is, is still seen very much as a good thing uh, for Pakistan uh, in the context of its need for... Um, some kind of equalizing influence to India, because uh, as I say, it won't sit with uh, being dominated by India, it wants to be treated as an equal of India, so it looks for outside support in order to achieve that. To wrap up, I wanted to um, sort of ask you a bit more about writing history. Um, so could you tell me a bit maybe about your research methods and the types of sources um, you've worked with? Um, I know you mentioned earlier, um, like, the interviews you did um, in studying partition memories? Yes, I, obviously, I mean, as a historian, um, I've used a whole range of sources. I mean, for partition, uh, oral history was, was important, but uh, documentary history uh, has to be utilized. Um, that is mostly um, documentary history in terms of uh, British colonial records. Obviously, you're, you need to be careful when you're using those kinds of sources in terms of the biases that are within them. Uh, but that's the same with any source. I mean, if you're listening to someone who's, who's, who's giving you a, a, an interview about an event, they may well have their own agendas and uh, <laughs> biases in that. So it, it's not necessarily a problem inherent uh, just in colonial documentary uh, material. So newspapers is a, um, sort of another source that um, are often useful. Uh, but again, I mean, you need to be aware of the biases within that, that kind of material. I think that, um, you know, over the years, more sources have become available. 
when I first started out doing work on uh, India, uh, colonial India, colonial Punjab, uh, there wasn't the range of sources that are available now in terms of uh, not just government sources, but private memoirs, private papers, uh, papers of political parties. Uh, another source that you could uh, use, I use the Muslim League records quite extensively when I was doing my doctoral research way back in the uh, mists of time. I wouldn't say how long ago, but you can probably guess how long ago the thesis was completed in 81, so that gives you an indication of how long ago we're talking about. So there's those kind of sources uh, that, that you can use. And I think um, a mix of material, blending uh, a range of sources is, is probably um, the best way that uh, a historian uh, can approach any topic. Uh, but to try and give the impression, you know, that you can come out with a, a, a factual history as a result of this is another matter altogether. All history is constructed. Uh, all historians bring their own, uh, perhaps even unconscious biases to the material as they approach it. Uh, so I, I think that, um, you know, to say you're using a range of sources and as a result of that you've got uh, a definitive account of the past is a, is a, is a sort of uh, misnomer. But nonetheless, it is always a good thing uh, if you can to use as, as wide a range of material as possible. Mm. Uh, in all this, have you found it uh, sort of difficult at all to uncover um, what you think is the Pakistani side of the story or how have you tried to do that? Um, given that a lot of these sources are, are colonial sort of official or at least British documents. Yes, I, I mean, the, the there are sort of um, Pakistani sort of uh, sources in terms of memoirs, but these are again people from an elite background who are giving their own particular uh, biases and agenda. There are Pakistani sources in terms of newspapers, uh, but again, they, they may be following a particular proprietor's or owner's agenda. Um, there are sort of um, various books uh, in Urdu and other Pakistani uh, local languages, uh, but just because you're consulting those materials doesn't mean to say that they're more or less biased. Many of them have their own biases. Uh, families, in fact, often uh, elite families might um, produce histories of, the, of their family. Uh, you know, which were then published locally, say in Urdu or Punjabi. I mean, this is very good in many ways because it gives you uh, insights into um, aspects of life which you didn't previously perhaps have access to. But nonetheless, uh, the, these volumes are produced with a particular purpose in mind. Uh, so that um, I think it, you know, Pakistani sources, uh, you can use a variety of so-called vernacular source materials to, uh, along with interviews, uh, to uncover them. But that doesn't mean to say that, that you can privilege them as uh, being any more or less biased than uh, any other type of source material that uh, you would be using. Mm -hmm. um, with that in mind, I'm curious to know what, uh, what do you think of um, like the field of South Asian history in general or Pakistani history? Like where do you see the future of um, study in this field? I think um, in terms of future study, I mean, it, it, it's already uh, very much being driven by the interest of people within the diaspora. And I think that's the first uh, element which is really important. Uh, so issues of identity, 
I, I think will continue to be uh, very significant, certainly in the next 10, 15 years or so, uh, because uh, people will be wanting to uncover um, their sort of uh, ancestries, uh, and uh, perhaps that will lead to a more diversification. Uh, because, as I say, Pakistan is it, a complex country, so that you may get, you know, uh, people from within the diaspora who are, who are approaching uh, from a very localized uh, level. You don't often get that in Pakistan itself, uh, but you may get that within the diaspora. I think another area which will, there will be much, much more work done is environmental history. I think that's going to be very important uh, in the next 10 or 15 years, both at the state level, how the states, uh, how the colonial era legacies have impacted on notions of development and sustainability, um, local environments uh, and, and the, the, the human geographies, I think will be very significant. I think that's a growth area certainly as well uh, in the next uh, 10 or 15 years. Uh, and possibly also, depending on how all of this turns out, you know, um, there may be more work uh, in terms of uh, tracing um, China and uh, uh, Pakistan sort of cultural connectivities within the region over a longer period of time. That may, may, that may be another growth area uh, as well in the future. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of On History with Ian Talbot. Remember to keep an eye out for our next episode, an interview with Gillian Clough, Professor Emerita of Ancient History at the University of Bristol.